Well, it's fantastic to be joined by Dr. Helen Morris. Helen, thank you for joining us. No problem. Um, Helen, you are Acting Director of Studies and Lecturer in Applied Theology at Moreland's College. Yeah. Uh, so uh, you are a, a doctorate, you have a doctorate as well. Um, tell us, just first of all, for those interested, before we dive into the topic, um, what was your doctorate on? Like, what, what did you explore for that? So I was really interested to look at um, what people were writing about church and contemporary culture. Um, the Fresh Expressions movement, but others as well, kind of just rethinking how could church maybe be creative and innovative and trying to reach out to um, what is really quite a different kind of cultural vibe than, you know, 50, 60 years ago. Um, I was particularly interested in the ecclesiology, which is the theology of church. So I wanted to both kind of assess what is the ecclesiology. Sometimes that's just our assumptions or a kind of subconscious ecclesiology about church. It was undergirding what people were writing and then... Um, could I contribute to that by particularly looking at Paul's body of Christ metaphor in the New Testament? So yes, that's what I looked at. Fantastic. That sounds really interesting. And, and I guess, I mean, this isn't why we're here, but I guess the whole of 2020 and COVID uh, is really interesting for that topic, isn't it? What does that mean for how we do church? All those kind of things. Is there, is there anything just off the top of your head to put you on the spot? Is there anything you've been thinking about or if you could write again now? What would you say for, for that? Yeah, no, it is, it is really interesting. I mean, I think one of the things that I was trying to argue, I mean, I, it's a little bit of a shameless plug, isn't it? But this is, you know, my PhD with some edits. Fantastic. Slightly more accessible, uh, although quite a lot of it is as the PhD was. Um, yeah, one of the aims that I had in here uh, was to sort of argue, I think if we've got a really robust sense of what church is, you know, biblically, how the New Testament presents church, then we're in a really strong position to be able to kind of contextualize, adapt to what's going on in culture faithfully, uh, but also mm. kind of creatively. Um, and so I think it's really interesting that I think one of the things that the pandemic has kind of thrown up is, is again, that question, which people were always already asking to a certain extent, but perhaps are asking even more of like, you know, what is church? And therefore, when our kind of norms of church haven't been possible, um, what's most important for us to prioritize? You know, how do we mm. best kind of adapt? Uh, so, yeah, so I think, I mean, if I was rewriting, obviously, that would be absolutely something that we want to uh, include. I didn't, you know, there's a few throwaway comments to kind of church online, but hardly anything really. So obviously that's yeah. something I would have um, spoken about or tried to write about in, in a lot more depth. That sounds really interesting. I, for one, definitely am going to read that. So it's called Flexible Church yes. by Dr. Helen Morris. And um, I, I mean, that's really interesting that you said about, you know, how we faithful um, as to what church is and yet be creative because that's been the key thing this year hasn't it is like yeah. faithfulness yeah absolutely creativity to, to improvise mm -hmm. and i guess that's very interesting so we're here in case anyone's wondering we're here to talk about worship you've written this chapter in the book why worship and your chapter is in the first part where we explore the nature of god god is one god is father god is son god is holy spirit i write the chapter on holy spirit you write the chapter on, on god the son jesus and one of the things you picked, you picked the book of Hebrews to kind of land in uh, and to be rooted in. Tell us why Hebrews, because Hebrews, I guess, is, is faithful and yet creative, isn't it? Yeah. With, with, with the text, with the Old Testament to describe Jesus. So tell us why Hebrews. Yeah, I mean, the New Testament does uh, contain loads of just amazing passages that tell us who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Um, so to a certain extent, there's loads of places that you could turn to. But I do think in Hebrews, there are certain aspects of Jesus' role. Jesus is a perfect sacrifice, the perfect priest, 
uh, Jesus' full divinity and humanity that just come across so beautifully in uh, just that kind of prose of Hebrews that brings those things to life. So, so yes, there's loads of places. There's, there's no bad place to turn to, but um, Hebrews does have those just really uh, beautiful pictures that I think can inspire us to worship as well as give us the kind of intellectual content that helps us to uh, to know who it is that we're worshiping yeah because I, th I think you talk in the chapter of the power of comparisons how if something kind of blows our minds yeah uh, one useful technique is to compare it to something else that we're kind of familiar with that's smaller or bigger or whatever to kind of get get the size of something to kind of let it land in our hearts and minds Talk, t tell us a bit about that because I think you did some analogies from your own kind of life or pre-theology life. Tell us a bit about that as a yeah. No, of. I did. I mean, I my um, I was I've slightly been one of those perpetual students really through my life. So I started off studying sports science and physics at Loughborough oh, University, wow. and uh, physics was always a little bit you know over my head in terms of the maths of it. But I've always loved the kind of concepts of it, and particularly. Um, the kind of physics that explores the really big and the really small. I just find all of that mind blowing. Um, mm. uh, yeah, so I give some analogies about, you know, from space, the size of space and universe and the density of neutron stars and so on, because all of that is just so much beyond what we can comprehend. I find them, you know, I kind of think, well, if God is the creator and he's created this and I, you know, I can't even get my head around this that God's created. It, you know, when I think of those things, uh, it just kind of blows my mind afresh as to the kind of magnitude of God, the magnificence of God, the awesome sovereign power of God. So, yes, I do include some mm. of those, uh, something from my physics background, as it were. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I guess the writer to the Hebrews, that's what going back to the faithfulness, yet creativity, that's what they're, they're wrestling with. The whole New Testament is wrestling with aren't they, in epistles. And uh, how do we understand and put words into Jesus, like Jesus has revealed as uh you know as fully divine fully human i mean they weren't words they kind of you know they, they were wrestling with this weren't they and so they were using old testament a lot in a in a new frame in a sense to try and articulate that and you, you mentioned this uh, you give some examples just talk to us a bit about that about the the use of the old testament uh in hebrews to try and kind of explain articulate why jesus should be worshipped really wasn't it at its heart yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that is so incredible about the New Testament is a way in which there are various Old Testament strands that if you're just kind of reading through from Genesis, you know, from start to finish, and you don't, you know, maybe you don't know about Jesus, you're not necessarily going to kind of connect those things together. Uh, but then there's just this real beauty to the way in which um, when Jesus uh, is is born and through his life and through his death, his resurrection, his ascension, the Holy of his future return you see that all of these strands that look like they were kind of uh, not entirely disconnected but also quite separate like are fully fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus so I think mm. um, you know the examples I just mentioned is priest and sacrifice you know, have this sense mm. in the Old Testament of both um, sin being so significant human rebellion against God being so significant that God and his great holiness isn't just going to kind of br going to brush human evil under the carpet as if it didn't matter. And so there is this mm. kind of, you know, concept of sacrifice, concept of atonement that comes in. Um, and then there's also the concept of a priest. Uh, you know, human beings are fallen. And so uh, in the midst of a fallen humanity, you need some representatives who perhaps have a slightly different standard. Uh, and they, you know, they need to kind of offer these sacrifices to, to God as God's, you know, sacrificial system is God's gift uh, as a way of kind of maintaining relationship with his people. And then in the author of Hebrews is sort of saying, well, Jesus is both of those things. You know, he's the perfect sacrifice and the perfect priest. And you wouldn't necessarily have thought to put those two things together in the Old Testament. 
But the New Testament authors reflecting on the personal work of Jesus suddenly see that both of these motifs are perfectly fulfilled in what Jesus does. And, and, and that, even that fact, again, going back to what we just said, blows our minds, doesn't it? Yeah. That like, how could the sacrifice and the high priest be the same thing? Blow, would have blown the Old Testament mind, wouldn't it? And, and blows our contemporary minds even more because we've got to get, first of all, understand the sacrificial system. Yeah. And so I guess one of the things that comes across from your chapter is the need to understand what the scriptures, the Torah, in a sense, you know, to understand fully uh, why Jesus, why is he so central? Why is he to be worshipped, to be glorified? Because he, he makes sense within this, uh, within this system, doesn't, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. And, and <clears throat> Yeah, that's no, sorry. I was going to say. I mean, it's 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 um on my mind because we, in I think I think I mentioned this in the chapter. In the first year, we've introduced a task to the students where we ask them to try yes. and articulate the gospel in a short period of time. Um, yeah. Scott McKnight in his book The King Jesus Gospel goes to 1 Corinthians 15 as what he argues is this kind of summary of the apostolic gospel, uh, yeah. which you know Paul says this is the gospel that I received, I passed on to you that Christ died according to the scriptures and that Christ was right. raised again according to the scriptures and I think that according to the scriptures it's easy to kind of gloss over it as if it's just like a kind of little embellishment but I think it's absolutely core to, to Paul's understanding of the gospel that it is like mm. according to the scriptures it is a fulfillment of these Old Testament motifs and themes uh, that you know Jesus has come to fulfill and so to, to really understand the fullness of the gospel it is really important that uh, we kind of begin to immerse ourselves in those old testament scriptures and understand those as well as the um the new testament and how the new testament authors see those ideas as fulfilled in what jesus does and in a sense um i think you write about how you know kind of imagery like say angels as mediators the writers of the hebrews then takes and kind of subverts or makes more of to try and explain yeah. jesus in this case his divinity that he is well he's more than that he's a mediator but he's he's fully both parties in the mediation isn't he he's not something in the middle he's fully divine fully human um and the power of and genius of that comes across i think in, in, in what you're saying tell us a little bit about that because what i mean that opening i mean jesus is compared to many things in the sets in hebrews isn't he yes, yes. and um and yet it lands in that opening chapters it, it lands in one of my favorite bits where you know um Quoting the Psalms, you know, it says Jesus stands amongst us and calls us brothers and sisters in the congregation. And I think I think I remember because I studied Calvin for my PhD, he, you know, he says from this passage, Calvin says, you know, Jesus is the great choir master, which I love that, you know, leading us all uh, mm -hmm. in praise. Um, I, I, you, you are involved in worship. You play. I, I don't know if you're trying to keep this secret, but you are a musician. So you understand worship. So um just talk a bit about, I guess, the, the centrality of Jesus as being more than some of these, you know, metaphors and imagery. And what's that mean for worship? Yeah, I mean, I think, as I said right at the start, I, there is something about the way that the author of Hebrew writes that is so beautiful. I mean, I'm often saying mm. to the students, to, it's really worth examining the Bible as literature, even though we believe in a sense it's more than literature and that it's, you know, authoritative and it's inspired by the spirit. There's something about the yeah. way that it is written, like when you read a beautiful poem that kind of inspires you to worship. And so these, yeah, these beautiful um, kind of passages about the, the nature of Jesus is, is really inspiring. And so I think what the Bible does for us in terms of then contemporary worship, it shows us that the content of worship 
is really important. So mm. uh, the true the truths of worship. So you know those worship songs that really paint a clear picture of you know, this is the character of God. This is the nature of Jesus. This is who He is. That that content is really important. But then there is also I think you know something like Hebrews, which um, is so beautifully written, and that beauty in and of itself points to something of the beauty of who Jesus is and what He's done. I think it should inspire us similarly in contemporary worship to think you know the style does matter. Uh, it's yeah. not that, you know, anything goes as long as the kind of words are good. I think it doesn't, you know, there doesn't need to be that combination of, yes, really strong content, true, faithful content that um, that reminds people who it is they're worshipping and helps them to grow in knowledge of who it is they're worshipping. But there is actually something about the style as well uh, and the beauty that can be contained in that, that I think is significant in, um, in helping us to kind of uh, give our praise to Jesus. Hmm. Let's touch on that as a practical application then. Songwriting, right? Go with me. So, because okay. it's again, it's interesting faithfulness and yet creativity as a lens. Because you know, you'll have some songwriters for the church who are like, we just want to take literally the words of the text itself and put them put them to. I mean, I don't know if you write songs as well as play. So tell us, tell us in answer to this question. I want you to tell us a little bit about your involvement in worship, okay? But um, you know, so some songwriters will take the literal words of scripture, put them into music some songwriters will be feel like that's not creative enough do you know what i mean that they'll, they'll want to say well taking into account culture and my context i need to be faithful to the text yes but be creative mm -hmm. what where do you sit on that kind of tension how would you see it um and tell us a little bit about your involvement in worship yeah so um i mean i think there's place for both you know, I do, you know, I really do like those uh, songs that stick really closely to kind of a psalm, um, for example. But, um, but yeah, I think it's, it's not always easy to just kind of take the, the kind of plain words of scripture and put them to a melody that, you know, particularly when you've got translation issues as well. You know, some of the psalms that may have sounded a certain way in Hebrew aren't necessarily going to kind of yeah. flow in that same way when they're translated. So, no, absolutely. Yeah. I think there's room for creativity. Um, but yeah, I think when people are inspired by particular passages and that comes and that comes through, I think there there is a um, a huge power in that. Um, so in terms mm. of my own experience, um, you know, I've been involved for for a lot of years actually. We, as a child, I was the the sort of drummer in the uh, in the church band, which was fun. Probably uh, you know deafened a few people. My overzealous drumming at times, and then later on, kind of learned the guitar. And then my lockdown hobby has been to try and learn the keyboard. Um, which I've been really enjoying. Uh, that's been great. Um, so yeah, it's been involved in in um, kind of sung worship. Yeah, well, since since being a kind of a young teenager, really um, mm. playing or leading leading worship a little bit, as well as uh, playing in the band. So yeah, for me, it's you know people are a bit different, aren't they? You know, some people I think all of us uh, you know connect with God in a multitude of ways, and I think for certain people, mm. music is like a kind of one of the really cool ways that they feel that they can praise God. And I would put myself in that category. Like I love music and love praising God in, in singing and in music. Fantastic. So I, I guess um, because similarly with me, you know, twin passions, theology, kind of thinking through who God is, reading about it fuels my kind of praise, writing it down, you know, is exciting when you're trying to discover a new idea or a new way of saying something. And then music because music does something a theology essay can't do, right? Um, so just while we're here, I guess, um, how do you understand that kind of flow between, because uh, worship sometimes transcends our kind of intellectual, you know, it's not a book with chapters, is it? Like, 
worship is this holistic engagement of all of the person and that comes across through the book um you know all the different chapters and yet theology can be quite and, and kind of researching god or you know reading our bibles it can feel quite a, just a mind mind thing an intellectual thing how do you understand those two things kind of working together because often they can be separate can't they like pra music practitioners don't talk to kind of theologians and thinkers and how, how do you see those two things working together yeah, I mean, I think for me, I, I, I like analogies. I mean, that maybe that comes across in the book through the kind of comparison and so on. But I, I, I like an analogy of kind of like a friend or, you know, somebody that you have a really deep relationship with. Um, mm. But the intellectual knowledge is important in that. You know, the fact that you know their name, that you know what their job is, that they, you know what they like and dislike. You know, in a sense, that's intellectual mm. knowledge. But that is, that is really important for the relationship. But you recognise yeah. your relationship goes beyond you know it's beyond just that intellectual knowledge that you, you know them intellectually and you know them kind of relationship relationally you know you have a love for them and you spend time with them and invest mm -hmm. time with them and I find that a helpful analogy for thinking about God because you know the intellectual knowledge of God it is really important you know we we do need to have an accurate idea if, if we sort of think God is um spiteful you know intellectually our idea about God is incorrect you know God is is not right. spiteful you know he he is love and so I think the intellectual uh, side of faith is really important. Um, I think where that can become distorted or get a bad rep in a sense is when that becomes detached mm. from that relational knowing as well. But I think for me, mm. you know, the two very much go hand in hand. I mean, you see somebody like Paul uh, in the New Testament, a great example of somebody who is so steeped in the Old Testament, um, his encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus has like changed his whole worldview. He's like, oh, Jesus is the Messiah. And so there's a real intellectual rigor in a sense to his understanding of um, the scriptures of who God is, of God's kind of master plan and the way that master plan is outworked in the person of Christ and sending of the Holy Spirit. And yet that mm -hmm. goes hand in hand with this um, just real enthusiasm for worship that comes across those times when Paul, you know, seems to just be, I mean, you know, you never, you never quite know how Paul put his letters together, but it feels that sense of spontaneity as if he's just kind of, you know, running away with adjectives to describe uh, yeah. how, how amazing his, uh, you know, Jesus is and what Jesus has done and so on. So I think that's a good, you know, Paul, I think is somebody to aspire to in that sense of, you know, that relational knowing and the intellectual knowing going hand in hand. And of course, Paul had had that incredible encounter with the risen Jesus, hadn't he? And Hebrews is all about really, you know, risen, ascended, you know, this this Jesus. And Paul there has this actual face-to-face -face encounter that that changes everything. And so you, I guess that's a really helpful example because Paul does embody, because he tends to be seen, you're right, through the lens of his letters as this, intellectual giant you know very hard at times to understand exactly what he's trying to say yeah. you know if you think of some pastors in romans about the law you know it, and yet he he's fueled by by worship is he by an actual encounter that changes everything uh, for him and i guess <clears throat> while you're here i guess what would you say to encourage people you know who who are maybe listening to this or watching this who feel you know I'd love to study more worship. I'd love to study more about this, but I also love music. I love, like, what would you say? What do you say to people thinking of studying theology? You know, what would your encouragement be? 
Um, I think we are really blessed with like a, an abundance of resources that are written at all sorts of levels. You get, you know, you do get some theologians who uh, manage to kind of span both levels in a sense. You might think of um, Tom Wright's, you know, for example, somebody that can write, a, you know, really in-depth kind of scholarly work, but then uh, write at a really accessible level as well. I think Scott McKnight's another person who's able to kind of communicate that really accessible uh, level. So I think there is just yeah. a wealth of resources out there where, um, some really in-depth thinking has been put in, but it is being presented in a way that's trying to avoid some of that technical, you know, theology is like any other discipline, you know, there, there can be, you get into it and you suddenly realise you need a whole new dictionary or, you know, glossaries, yeah, yeah. technical terms that perhaps you've not come across before. But there's a lot of stuff that's been written that's got some really good uh, substance to it that, you know, does avoid a lot of that kind of technical language to make it accessible to people that, you know, haven't got that glossary in front of them at the time. Fantastic. And, and you've suggested at the end of every chapter, we suggest, don't we, a few more uh, things to read and get into. What, what, what was, is there anything you can like throw out now that would be great? You obviously, is your book, Flexible Church. Yeah. Uh, and any other kind of things that people. Yeah, I mean, could... John Stott, The Cross of Christ, I think I referenced that at the end. Um, that's a great book for just uh, getting a really clear, deep overview into the significance of uh, Jesus' death and resurrection. And there's a more recent. Um, Fleming Rutledge, the crucifixion, that again, is just really helpful at looking at those different lenses that um, the New Testament authors, through which they view the significance of Jesus' death, uh, which is, yeah, another really great book that's really in-depth, but um, I think written at a fairly accessible level. So, yeah, some, there's, some great, there's some great resources out there. Cool. I've got two more questions left. Is that all right? First yeah, of all... That. First of all, everyone is wondering if they're watching this rather than listening to it. What is? The, tell us about the surfboard uh, behind you. Yeah, so What's this, going on? Is, this is my office here at Morlands College. Yeah. And um, when I moved in, I inherited the of office of somebody called Stephen Cato. He had been working at the college previous to me and his wife, uh, Mandy, had been doing some uh, work at the college as well. And she had done uh, a devotional activity with some of the female students. I think they'd written kind of, you know, their the dreams that they felt like God had put in their heart, things they wanted to see happening and through their lives and they've written down on a surfboard and so it's just here when I moved into the office and, um, and I love it it like brightens up the room and uh, yeah it's just a bit of a focal point so I've kept it okay 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 so, you, so you're not a surfer yourself yet no I, I that hasn't been your lockdown not okay, surfing. okay okay yeah, okay yeah. all right <laughs> um all right back to a serious question before as we come into land uh, revelation okay so uh the book of revelation obviously um we have a chapter on this in the book by uh, dr daryl johnson out in vancouver um really exciting chapter and we end this book with kind of the future of worship so um i'd love to just touch base on it because it's relevant to hebrews and i know you yourself teach on revelation it's one of your kind of favorite areas as well mm -hmm. uh we're doing a series at uh, our church gastric church on revelation so it mm -hmm. seems like there's a lot going on for revelation at the moment i don't know if it's just you know the the, the crisis that there has been in the world maybe is, is it kind of provokes oh well i'll go to revelation on it you know or but in terms of the worship of christ Revelation four and five in particular, that vision are, mm -hmm. are key, aren't they? For for this deepening understanding that Hebrews sets up so well of the, the divinity uh, and yet humanity of Christ, what he's achieved. Just talk us through that, you know, what's the link and what do you see from Revelation for worship? Yeah, I mean, Revelation is a, is an absolutely fascinating book. Um, and it's a, it's a, I think, 
with I think this is true of all the books in the Bible, but I think particularly Revelation, it's really worth getting a kind of solid uh, scholarly view on Revelation. It's the sort of book that it, I think is deeply meaningful and deeply insightful. Um, but because of some of the imagery, you know, if you just kind of type in Revelation and go online, you, you're not necessarily going to find the most helpful takes on it. So it's really worth if you're, you know, you're new to Revelation, um, it's definitely worth getting hold of um you know, somebody that's thought about it uh, ahead of time, because it can be a bit confusing otherwise. But yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, Revelation has these uh, amazing Christophanies, as a good technical term for you. Um, in the Old Testament, you have these kind of theophanies, these kind of the heavens parting and these visions of God. And then you see at the start of Revelation, Jesus being depicted uh, with some of that language, just so, I mean, you couldn't really have a stronger sort of claim to Jesus' divinity than uh, describing him through, through that language that's previously been used to depict um you know israel's god in the old testament yeah so, yeah absolutely a lot of accord there uh different genre completely different genre to hebrews but absolutely uh, sending that similar message but then yeah i mean at the heart of uh, the kind of message of um revelation is that image of jesus as the the slain lamb you know the one who is the line of mm. judah but being depicted as a slain lamb which is just um an amazingly visual and powerful way of communicating the significance of jesus crucifixion for the bringing about God's kingdom. Um, Richard Borkham, he is writing at the slightly more scholarly end of the, uh, of the scale, but his work on Revelation is, uh, is really insightful, um, really helpful. And he, he says, you know, what's his summary of Revelation is that Revelation is essentially about God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. It's like the answer to that part of the, the Lord's Prayer where you see that. How does God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? Well, it comes yeah. through the slain lamb. It comes through the sacrifice that Jesus made uh, mm. in order that he could be reconciled, forgiven, become that kind of kingdom of priests, um, you know, that, that serve the lamb, that follow the lamb, uh, worship God with uh, white robes rather than dirty rags. Um, so, yeah, in, in mm. very, very different style to Hebrews, it depicts, uh, yeah, those same truths, but in wonderful visionary mm. images and metaphors. It is amazing, isn't it? Once you start, um, as you've reminded us there, zooming out to see this whole story of worship. And when we say worship, we're talking about the relationship between God and his creation, us, aren't we? And how it's all his gift, his provision, you know, that whole, you know, one Peter, holy priesthood, royal nation, as you're saying, you know, that picks up the, the, the link with Moses, the covenant with Moses, uh, all the way through to here, Revelation, you know, you, you, you see, oh, the, the means by which this can happen now is that God himself has given his son. Um, and, and this idea that the one who holds the keys, you know, does the earlier on, he said, I hold the keys, I hold the keys to everything you fear, everything that locks you in. I've got the keys. And, and then in Revelation four and five, here he is as this slain lamb. Mm. And yet he still holds, you know, there's a, it again. It, to go back to our theme it blows our brains mm -hmm. uh, because he he's he's the strong one he's got all authority everything under his feet he holds the keys and at the same time the means by which he holds the keys is because he's laid down his life he is the sacrifice uh, as well as the high priest yeah. and it's this incredible image isn't there in four and five of, of just like well again i think you talk about the disparity between what john sees and what he hears yeah theologically just on that say a bit about that because i guess to me that makes me think again that moment of silence in worship you know we like yeah. you know or, or falling dead as if you're at the feet you know it's that moment of 
I, something doesn't compute here because this is so wild and it leads me to work. Is that what you mean or what, what, go on, what do you think that means? Yeah, no, so when I talk about the, the contrast between what John hears and sees, um, it's, I mean, the, the imagery is, uh, is difficult to understand if you, like I say, if you don't get somebody like Richard Borkham to kind of come alongside you and help you to understand it. But, um, but yeah, John has a vision. Uh, God has a scroll that's unopened in his hand. And this scroll is um, representative of God's kind of purposes for creation creation uh Borkham describes it as being you know god's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven is kind of contained in the scroll uh, and yet the scroll can't be opened and so this is like dramatic you know if this was kind of a theater but like this really like pin drop moment where it's like this dramatic pause of like what on earth is going to happen it, it looks like god's purposes for creation cannot be outworked and so john it would, it would it would be the it would be the end of season two on netflix before season three wouldn't <laughs> yeah, it yeah exactly yeah you gotta wait like a whole year before you find out what happens yeah and john's we you know he, he's weeping and then he hears a voice that says you know do not weep see the line of the tribe of judah the root of david has conquered uh, and mm -hmm. so you know as, as if you're kind of uh, immersed in this vision as john is you're thinking okay the lion of the tribe of judah is conquered you know you're going to expect to see a kind of roaring lion is speaking of that kind of power of jesus um and it brings in a lot of old testament motifs as well which uh, you know you can read more about um but then he sees not a roaring lion but a lamb mm. standing as if slain uh, and he is able to open the scroll and, mm. and it's seven seals and then the kind of narrative goes on to describe the opening of uh, the scroll and it's and it's seven mm -hmm. seals. Uh, and Richard Borkham um, discusses that kind of juxtaposition, that clash that there is between what, what John hears, the lion, and what he mm -hmm. sees, the, the slain lamb. Um, mm -hmm. it, I mean, it is a matter of uh, massive scholarly debate, you know, how you understand those two images, but certainly it is really highlighting something of the, the real significance of the, the suffering death of Jesus in bringing about God's kingdom. And, um, and Borkham's really, I think, insightful in saying in terms of the message of Revelation, for the believers, you know, the, the lamb is their model. Uh, mm. the, the lamb brings in the kingdom through a willingness to suffer. Um, mm. And so too, you know, the, the believers through standing firm, faithful to Jesus, even if their culture is against them, even if their lives are going to be in danger as a result, uh, that through standing firm, that witness, even when it causes them suffering, that they then get to play a part in this kind of coming of God's kingdom on earth as it in, mm. is in heaven. So it's a, it's a book that um, paints a powerful picture of the object of worship, Jesus, but also gives us some really um, incredible impetus and motivation for, for what it looks like to worship in that kind of whole life sense uh, and that willingness mm. to to be steadfast, committed, faithful to Jesus, even when that causes suffering, is uh, is a really strong message that comes out through Revelation. Fantastic. Well, Helen, we should we should finish. So, I mean, thank you so much. There's so much richness in that conversation. And um, thank you for writing the chapter uh, on on Jesus, God the Son, as as the object of our worship. Would you just and um, would you mind just praying for people listening, people watching this? Uh, just however you want to pray. Uh, yeah. for them as worshippers that'd be great yeah no problem heavenly father we do want to thank you that there is so much for us to be thankful for and to praise you for that even uh those moments where we get such great insight and revelations to your character still there's more still there's aspects depths of your love heights to your love uh, the breadth the width of your love that we are yet to fully grasp and so father just pray for all those listening, watching, uh, that's something more of the truth of who you are, of who Jesus is, and all that Jesus has done for us, would be uh, revealed 
and that you would inspire us to live lives of worship, that in all that we say and think and do, we are living lives of gratitude, thanksgiving and praise that enables others to see something of you and to come to know the amazing news of Jesus too. So we pray these things for your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, uh, Dr. Helen Morris. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>